Hi, it's Amy. Before this episode starts, I want to thank you for listening to How We Survive. This season is coming to an end, and I need to remind you that we are public media. We rely on donations from you to continue doing this kind of rigorous, long-form journalism. Please give generously right now at marketplace.org survive. We've also got a link in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. It's time for trivia! It's trivia night at Desert Monks Brewing in Gilbert, Arizona, outside Phoenix. Whoever wins first game wins a $10 gift certificate! The crowd is lively, and the beer is flowing. Oh yeah, the rules. Don't internet cheat. And uh, while you're discussing the answers, keep your voice within your team. Trivia nights are popular here, but lately Desert Monks has been getting lots of attention for its beer, one in particular. This is our Town Square Lager. That's Summer Decker, one of the brewery's owners. Prost. Town Square Lager. It's really refreshing. As lagers are intended to be. Oh, I really needed a beer. I didn't realize it. This was a special batch because of the type of water Desert Monks used to brew it. Summer describes it as the purest kind of water, like a blank canvas. But the water didn't start out that way. The water that we get from the city of Scottsdale, this direct potable reuse water, is so clean and fresh. Wow. And this is wastewater, right? This is coming from the sewer? Originally, yes. I'm Amy Scott. Welcome to How We Survive. This season, we're on the hunt for solutions to the water crisis in the West. Water supplies in this part of the country are drying up for all sorts of reasons. Overuse, drought, climate change. So finding new supplies is critical. The good news is that water is all around us if you know where to look and how to treat it. This episode, we're going on a water road trip across the West to check out the technology that's creating drinking water from, yes, the sewer, from the ocean, even out of thin air. You can actually taste the difference. And you'll want to stick around till the very end because I'll be doing a taste test along the way and picking my favorite. This tastes good. I mean, I think it actually tastes better than what comes out of my tap in Baltimore. This is episode seven, Water, Water Everywhere. We start our water tasting tour not far from that brewery on top of a building in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're going up onto the roof. Thank you. Oh yeah, it is bright. (laughs) We're surrounded by beautiful desert hills shimmering in the heat. Ooh, I'm totally gonna get vertigo. We came to the roof, not for the view, but for a glimpse at a mind-blowing piece of technology. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, so ten of these up here. It's an installation of what looked like solar panels, but do something very different. These are called hydro panels, and they're pulling water straight out of the dry desert sky. 
Sounds a bit like something you might have seen in a movie. What I really need is a droid who understands the binary language of moisture evaporators. Evaporators? If you've ever watched Star Wars, you may remember Luke Skywalker grows up on a desert planet. His family makes a living as moisture farmers, using devices that pull drinking water from the air. And the vaporator devices in Star Wars are a bit like the tech behind these hydro panels. Cody Friesen is the founder and CEO of Source, the company that makes them. Think about the way that if you leave the lid off a sugar bowl, over time it gets a little bit clumpy because obviously the sugar is absorbing water vapor from the air. The sciencey word is that the sugar is hygroscopic. Okay, this next part gets a little technical, but stay with me. We're going to get into how the panels work. So you've got the sugar in the bowl getting clumpy. Now imagine that we have a material that's engineered to do that same process very rapidly. We then show those materials to sunlight, which causes the water vapor to respire. Meaning the water vapor is evaporated and condensed to create liquid water. And we do that many, many times per day. And so very efficiently now we can produce drinking water really anywhere. Even in bone-dry Arizona. Water vapor is actually everywhere on the planet. And even when it's hot and dry out, hot air holds a lot more water vapor than cold air. And so Hmm. even though the relative humidity is low, the absolute humidity may not be. And so in a place like Arizona in the middle of summer, when it's literally sub 5% relative humidity, there's still a lot of water vapor in the air. How much water can one of those panels produce here on a hot day? Yeah, so each panel can do about five liters a day, so like 10 standard 16-ounce bottles of water a day. And so, you know, if you had two on your home, you'd be producing like a case of bottled water a day. So two panels enough for the drinking and cooking water for a family. So not enough to run a dishwasher or shower in, but enough to survive on. And in places where clean drinking water is scarce, like Tahajali, where Savannah Marr told us earlier this season about the smelly, rusty water, or Rio Verde foothills, where the local water supply got cut off, that could be a lifeline. Because as soon as you have a hydropanel at your home, you own intrinsically your own drinking water supply. And what's the cost? A single panel with installation kit, the, all the plumbing and everything else combined— is $2,900. The bigger the project, Cody says, the lower the per-household cost. Cody imagines a future where an array of hydro panels provide water for entire communities. He says he's talking to some developers about large-scale projects. For now, though, it's more of an individual household solution. So this is the... Four corners area here. In a sort of control room, a staffer pulls up a digital map on a giant screen. Each of these pins represents a home. Many of these homes are right here in the United States, in communities that have struggled without running water for generations. So this is our panels that are sitting across the Navajo Nation. About a third of the households on the Navajo Nation have no running water. A partnership has installed more than 500 source panels on the reservation with plans for hundreds more. And obviously many, many around Phoenix area. So we didn't start zooming out. Wow. The map shows blue dots scattered around the globe. Cody says hydro panels are producing clean drinking water in 52 countries. 
Okay, now for the really important question. How does it taste? All right, let's go try some. All right. In the kitchen at Source headquarters, near the Pac-Man arcade machine, there's a water dispenser fed by the hydro panels on the roof. Okay. Tastes like water. Caitlin, you should try some. The thing about water, it's like you really only notice it if it's like not good. <laughs> it's not not good. I love it. The highest compliment. Okay, and I am gonna fill up my water bottle if you don't mind. No, please. So yeah, pretty good. And five stars for innovation. On to stop number two of our water tasting tour. Not too far up the road in Scottsdale is a place where drinking water is being created from another unexpected source. I think it's just that next step that we need to take in the Southwest to provide a sustainable water solution for us. I'm Brian Biesmeyer, the executive director for Scottsdale Water. That's the city's water utility. About 60% of its water comes from the Colorado River, but with recent cuts to the city's share of the river and more coming, Scottsdale needs alternatives. And the next step Brian's talking about is happening here, turning wastewater into safe drinking water. You might know it as toilet to tap. Brian prefers another term, ultra-pure water. We live in a desert environment. We, don't, we all know we don't get much rain. Our water resources are limited and this is a way to maximize the water resources we do have and uh, recycling water and making this ultra-pure water available for drinking water purposes seems just that next step that we need to do uh, as water managers uh, for the region. So can we see how it works? Yes, please. Brian takes us to a viewing area where we see clusters of long tubes. This is our first membrane treatment. Before it even gets here, the wastewater has gone through treatment to remove solids and other gunk. We actually use microbes, naturally existing microbes, to degrade waste and to eat that waste up. Then the clear water goes through several more rounds of treatments and filtration to remove bacteria, viruses, and other particles. There's a little sign out here that says reverse osmosis, in case you get lost. Then it's disinfected with ultraviolet light. Caitlin, my producer, spots a sign listing all the contaminants the water is tested for. Giardia, asbestos, uranium, silica, Wow, that's a lot of stuff that could be in your water. Once they're sure it's clean, a few minerals are added in for taste. Because there's nothing in the water, and most people enjoy water that actually has the minerals in it. Many bottled water uh, manufacturers do the same thing. Scottsdale Water isn't sending any of this water directly to taps yet, but for decades it's been pumping the stuff into the ground, where it trickles through hundreds of feet of soil, a natural filter, and into the aquifer, and eventually gets pumped back out and treated again before going to residents. That's known as indirect potable reuse, and lots of communities do it. But with the ongoing drought, Scottsdale is moving toward direct potable reuse, skipping the aquifer and sending the water right into its drinking water supply. 
And that means some PR to convince customers that it's safe. Did you have any sort of ick factor when you first started thinking about this? No, I have no, I have no qualms about it. We understand why folks could have some qualms about it, but I think when they look into the science, they look at the quality of the water we actually produce, they see the test of the water that we produce, a reasonable person will be won over. To win people over, Scottsdale Water is teaming up with one of the country's most beloved beverages, beer. The agency launched a campaign to get local breweries, like the one I visited earlier, to use recycled wastewater in their beer. There's even an annual showcase for brewers using recycled water called One Water. Desert Monks has been so happy with the result, they plan to start brewing most of their lagers from recycled Scottsdale water. Okay, so we already know I was a fan of the beer. Wow, okay, it's a drinking fountain. Yeah, we wanted this to to look like something people are familiar with. But what about the recycled water all by itself? All right, should I go for it? I'm going to drink out of this drinking fountain. It looks like the kind you'd find in an airport, only it's ultra-pure recycled water. It tastes like bottled water, just like you said it would. I was thirsty. (laughs) Drink as much as you want. (laughs) It is hot, yeah. I can tell you that generally people like the taste of our recycled water. Why? Because it's the same process bottled water use. I have to tell you, my 12-year-old daughter, when I told her I was coming here and that I was going to taste some recycled wastewater. She said, well, isn't all water recycled wastewater? I was like, damn, kid. Smart girl. So yes, in the natural environment's been done since the earth was, since the earth was came into being. So all we do here is we take that natural environment and we accelerate it with a technology. Water experts say this is the future, and attitudes are changing slowly. From Los Angeles to Wichita Falls, Texas, cities across the Southwest, big and small, are working on plans for direct potable reuse. In Scottsdale, the goal is to start sending its clean, recycled water directly to customers by 2026. That's a lot of time to get used to the idea. All right, for our final stop in our water tasting tour, we're leaving the desert and heading west to the beach. There's the ocean, not too shabby of a view. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Amy. I've been reporting for Marketplace for more than 20 years now and hosting How We Survive for the past two years. As a journalist, I have a commitment to you to uncover the truth, bring it to light, and hold the powerful accountable. Support How We Survive and other journalism like this with a donation today at marketplace.org survive, or click the link in our show notes. Ah, that's the sound of the Pacific Ocean. After Arizona, I kept heading west and reached Carlsbad, California. It's peak summer. Locals and tourists are surfing, swimming, soaking in the sun. There's a guy sitting in a van with his laptop open, hair still wet after surfing. And just across the street from the beach, a chain-link fence and what looks like a big industrial park. 
You can't really tell what it is. An old power plant, maybe? Hi. Hi. We drive through a gate and to the final stop in our water tasting tour. We're at the Claude Bud Lewis Carlsbad desalination plant, where water from the Pacific Ocean is being turned into drinking water, about 54 million gallons a day, making up about 10% of the local water supply. So we're a piece of the pie, as I like to say, in, uh, in San Diego region's water portfolio, making sure that it's diverse and continue to provide reliable, high-quality water. That's Michelle Peters. She runs operations here and will be our tour guide. Okay, so actually real quick before we do go out, a couple safety things so everyone has hard hat vests, glasses. No pressing any big red buttons. I know it's tempting, um, but they do work. Are there big red buttons? There are big red buttons. I have to keep my hands <laughs> in my pocket. The first thing you need to know about seawater desalination is that the technology has been around for centuries. There are 17,000 operational desal plants around the globe using various techniques. The Carlsbad plant uses reverse osmosis. We're just going to follow essentially the flow path where the water is going. Underneath us is a 72-inch pipeline. It's all underground until we get to our pretreatment filters, and then the pipe will come up. So we're going to actually walk over there so you can see that pipe. In big green letters, seawater supply pointing up. <laughs> Every day, 100 million gallons of seawater come in from the ocean through this 72-inch pipe and go through various treatment stages. In the first round of treatment, algae and other impurities are removed. Think of it like if you're going, uh, going hiking or backpacking and looking for a water supply and you didn't have a, a water filter on you, you're looking for running water that's coming into contact with media, rocks, something there to kind of help remove those impurities. Just an engineered version of that. The next step is a big one, the reverse osmosis, or RO, process. Right now, we are standing in our RO uh, gallery. This is really the heart of desal. Picture rows and rows of long white cylinders stacked neatly on top of each other. So we're looking at about 2,000 of these white vessels, all filled with our reverse osmosis membranes, connected with these blue hoses in the middle. Those hoses are actually what's collecting, will become drinking water uh, once it goes through the disinfection process here. So quite a, quite a bit is going on here. There's a red button. There is a red button. Please no touching. The system works by pushing water through the tight membrane filters at very high pressure, letting water molecules through and leaving behind salt, bacteria, and viruses. The saltier seawater, or brine, that's left over is then diluted and sent back to the ocean. We'll come back to that. The water then gets disinfected, and minerals like fluoride are added back in to bring it up to drinking water standards. The entire process, from the moment it comes into the plant, takes about an hour and a half, almost as long as our visit. Plans to build this plant started in the 1990s, when San Diego County was in a brutal drought, importing almost all of its water from the Colorado River and Northern California. It wasn't completed until 2015. Now we're 20-plus years into another mega drought. Um, has this solved San Diego's water problems? To say it's solved is maybe a bit of a stretch, I think, but it has 
played a very key and critical role in us being able to provide this water to the region and folks not have to worry about when the Colorado River reductions come, were coming through. It's a controversial solution. There are three classic criticisms of desal. Let's call them the three E's. The first E stands for expense. The Carlsbad plant cost a billion dollars. San Diego County pays more for desalinated water than for water imported from the Colorado River. The second E stands for environmental impact. Critics worry all that super salty water or brine that's being released back to the sea could wreak havoc on marine ecosystems. And the third E stands for energy. Removing salt from ocean water sucks up a lot of energy. This plant is powered by a mix of natural gas and renewables provided by the local utility. This tension between energy and water is something that came up a lot this season, including in my interview with Pat Mulroy, who we heard from in the last episode. In our world today, it's a constant battle between water and energy. A lot of energy solutions are heavily water intensive. So imagine how much water it takes to create a lithium battery large enough to store power for a facility or for a house. Huge water users. The flip side is that a lot of the, quote, sustainable water solutions are very energy intensive. So the two butt heads constantly. And it's like we're looking for that new fulcrum. You know, there's that new middle point where you're balancing both energy and water, maximizing efficiencies of both. And I think everybody is still struggling to find that point. The industry is working on cleaner options, using wind and solar to offset emissions. Wave-powered desal is another up-and-coming innovation. Michelle at the Carlsbad plant says scientists are even looking at how to use the brine byproduct from desalination to capture carbon dioxide. There are a lot of really, really smart folks out there, I will say, um, that are looking into every single angle possible as to how to essentially bridge this gap that's been in place now for a while between water and energy. You know, people have been saying we can only have one, but, you know, okay, we need both. One thing we do know is that desal isn't going away. California regulators have approved a new plant in Orange County. Arizona's considering a plan to import desalinated water from Mexico. So we're going to just walk just back through the plant here. Yep, it's time for a taste. And then we'll get to our final um, stage here. Go on the product water deck and you guys will actually get to try the water and tell us how we did. All right, this is for me. I am kind of thirsty. So Michelle has opened the tap and is filling up a bunch of glasses of water for us. Plastic cups, really. All right, cheers. Cheers. Ocean water. Tastes like water? Tastes like water. It's good. It tastes like bottled water. So tell me what to be looking for. Help me develop my palate for water. The lightness on the tongue, perhaps. It's got a nice mouthfeel. It does have a good mouthfeel, yeah. Exactly. You're a pro already. What about the nose? But yeah, on the nose, we hope you don't smell anything. Yeah. I was like, well, you shouldn't. 
One thing water experts seem to agree on, there isn't a single solution. No panacea that will get us out of the water crisis. We're going to need all the solutions we learned about today, from extracting water from the air, those hydro panels, to recycling wastewater, to desalination, and countless other innovations we didn't get into in this episode that are getting the attention of investors. An estimated $1.2 billion of venture capital funding has gone into water technology over the last two years, still just a fraction of the $70 billion pouring into climate tech overall. So we're going to need way more investment. And we may have to reconsider how we think about the natural sources of water we have. In my opinion, this creek is alive. You can hear it. You can see it moving. You can taste it. You can smell it. And so, it, it, in our opinion, it is alive and it has a right to exist. Next time on How We Survive, the fight to recognize the rights of nature to save ourselves. Before we go, the moment of truth. I've tasted a lot of water on my road trip across the West and would like to think I've become a bit of a connoisseur. I can say they all taste like, yeah, water. But I do have a favorite. Honestly, it's whatever's available when I'm thirsty. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review or share it with a friend. It really helps. How We Survive is hosted by me, Amy Scott. Marissa Cabrera and I wrote this episode. With help from our production team, Haley Hirschman, Lena Fonsa, Courtney Bergseeker, and Sophia Polisa-Carr. Our senior producer is Caitlin Esch. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design by Chris Julin. And audio engineering by Brian Allison. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Bridget Bodner is director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is executive director. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. <laughs>